The International Atomic Energy Agency says Iran gave a plausible explanation for highly enriched uranium found at an undeclared nuclear site. We'll ask a U.S. researcher what's behind that assessment of Iran's response to the U.N. agency's long-running investigation. In some cases, it will say an explanation is not technically credible or it will say it can't really refute an explanation, so it's moving on. Plus, Persian TV network Iran International tells us when it plans to resume London broadcasts suspended because of security threats that British police said came from Iran. Because we are developing or constructing our new studios in London in a different location in a more safe place, it's going to take time, obviously. And we'll hear more about the making of a new podcast on Iran's alleged hit squads in Britain. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Iran. Good morning, I'm Michael Lippin in Washington. The IAEA's latest report on Iran's nuclear program says the issue of highly enriched uranium detected by UN inspectors at an undeclared Iranian nuclear site is no longer outstanding. The IAEA has been investigating the Maravan site near the city of Abadeh to determine if it was part of a secret nuclear weapons program that the UN agency, the West, and other countries say Iran abandoned in 2003. Iran has long denied ever seeking to build nuclear weapons. The IAEA report submitted to member states last week and seen by several news outlets said Iran gave a plausible explanation for the presence of uranium particles at Maravan and the UN agency had no further questions. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu criticized that assessment, accusing the IAEA of capitulating in the face of what he called Iran's weak excuses about nuclear material found in prohibited locations. Iran has long called for Israel's destruction, and Israel sees a nuclear-armed Iran as an existential threat. IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi, asked about Netanyahu's criticism, had this response at a Monday news conference. We never, ever, never, ever water down our standards. We, we stand by our standards, we, we apply our standards, and, uh, and if anything, in this, uh, um, uh, in this process, which is a complex process, which you have been following, uh, we have, uh, we have uh, been uh, strict, um, technically impartial, uh, as I like to say, um, very firm. Fair, but firm. So we don't. We are not in the in the business of watering down or politically adapting anything. Andrea Stricker is a researcher at the Washington-based Foundation for Defense of Democracies. I asked her why the IAEA's investigation of the Marivan site is significant. So Marivan, um, you mentioned, is is part of the IAEA's more than four-year investigation into undeclared nuclear weapons work. It's where Iran allegedly carried out some high-explosive testing related to nuclear weaponization prior to 2004. And the IA found uranium particles at the site at one part in 2020. And so the IA was asking Iran um, the reason for the finding of uranium plus other information that it has about Iran's activities. Now, Iran told it that one part of the site was used for munitions disposal, and the IA said this is not technically credible. The IA stands by its assessment that high explosive tests took place at the site. 
And then on the second part of the site where the IA found the uranium particles, Iran said it was due to contamination from mining activities. So the IA kind of notes this as a plausible explanation, and then it doesn't have enough evidence to prove or disprove it. So it has to move on from that one. Well, I wanted to ask you about that part of the site where Iran said it was engaged in mining. When you have the IAEA saying that it sees that explanation as possible or plausible, and then you have uh, Israel actually saying in the last uh, day or so that it sees that explanation as technically impossible, why do you think we're seeing such sharply divergent interpretations of what Iran explained to the IAEA? I think it's really a lot of how the IAEA reports its findings. Um, it, it has a lot of language that a lot of people don't understand that where it says there's more engagement needed on certain things. Other matters are not outstanding. In some cases, it will say an explanation is not technically credible, or it will say it can't really refute an explanation, so it's moving on. And this makes Israel upset, of course, because they see Iran's activities as nefarious, and there's plenty of evidence to show that they are. And so if you don't have the support of the IA Board of Governors and holding Iran's feet to the fire with Washington and Europe calling for cooperation, you know, better explanations. I think that's why we're seeing Jerusalem is calling out the IEA and they're sort of admonishing them and calling all of this a black stain on the agency's credibility. Well, why do you think the IAEA and its director general, Rafael Grossi, are trying to move on uh, when it comes to the activity detected at that particular site? It's a good question. Um, I think in some cases, they actually get caught in a dynamic with Iran, where Iran is very good at negotiating. They have preference to have a roadmap that they work through, where they will only talk about one issue, and they won't move on unless the IA decides it's satisfied with its explanations. So sometimes the agency can get sucked into this dynamic where they're trying to get to other issues like monitoring improving inspections and all that. And then they get held up on whether or not Iran will let them move on. So that may be that kind of dynamic. But as Rafael Grossi, the IA's director general, says at his press conference this week, that the idea that the agency is closing or canceling anything is just not accurate and not how they do business. Well, speaking of Rafael Grossi, you know, his job seems to be just to report in a neutral and technical way, as he puts it, what Iran is and isn't doing with its nuclear program, while at the same time avoiding getting political. Yet he often publicly expresses his own opinions about how well Iran is or isn't doing certain things in terms of its commitments. So I'd like to know how well you think Grossi is performing this role and trying to avoid crossing the line from being neutral into being political. I think in general, he does a pretty good job. Um, I'd like to know exactly what his goal of his investigation is, if he is just going to sort of check boxes on these sites and then move on to other things, or if he wants to really get to monitoring issues with Iran and inspections. We would like to see him calling for more access to sites, to seeing whether Iran maintains nuclear weapons activities today. And it is a tough situation that he is in. He has to balance everything with member states, and he's got Iran uh, limiting his insight into nuclear facilities. And then he's got, you know, Israel and at times Washington and Europe calling for more action. 
Not at the moment, though. The IA Board of Governors seems really disinterested in, in Iran's activities at this point. I was just going to ask you, now that the IAEA board is meeting in Vienna, you know, what do you think they're going to do in response to the latest report that was presented to them? I think the board, which has to frankly be led by Washington and Europe in order to pressure Iran to restore monitoring or help the IA get a credible baseline on Iran's nuclear assets again, they're just not doing their job. They keep approaching everything from the stance of if we push Iran too far, then they'll further limit monitoring or they'll enrich more uranium or go to 90% atomic weapons grade. And this approach is just clearly not working. They're offering sanctions relief when Iran has no incentive or desire to cooperate. So I, I don't think we're going to see a resolution of censure this week. The, the issue will likely be weighed on Wednesday. And it's unfortunate because it's happening when the UN missile embargo on Iran is set to expire this October. And that's going to directly affect Iran's ability to export missiles and drones to Russia for use in Ukraine. And we're still not hearing anything about restoring those sanctions. Well, what do you think is a better alternative for the IAEA board to get Iran to fulfill its commitments? What I think would be effective is if they would impose a deadline for cooperation and even give Rafael Grossi and his staff some reporting requirements. So they want to see answers on such and such sites. They want to see interviews and access uh, to the alleged nuclear weapons headquarters called SPND and other sites that are described in an archive of nuclear files that Israel seized in 2018. And also a deadline for Iran to halt its further advances. And then if it doesn't comply, then they would pursue referral to the UN Security Council, where the West could snap back sanctions and pursue economic and financial penalties. Well, let's see if we eventually get to such a point. Andrea Stricker, Non-Proliferation and Biodefense Program Deputy Director and Research Fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Thank you for being with us on Flashpoint Iran. Thank you for having me. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Iran. I'm Michael Lippin. London-based Persian TV news network Iran International has revealed its new target date for restarting studio broadcasts from the British capital. The network shut down its studios in London's Chiswick Park in February on the advice of British authorities, who had placed armed police outside its bureau for months because of threats they said emanated from Iran. Tehran has repeatedly denied allegations by Western nations that it sends its agents and proxies to their territories to kidnap or kill Iranian journalists and other people it sees as enemies. Since February, Iran International has been broadcasting all of its news programming from its bureau here in Washington. Mehdi Parpanchi is the network's U.S. executive editor. I sat down with him at the bureau on May 31st and asked when the London studio would reopen. We are trying to restart basically broadcasting from London as soon as possible. But of course, because we are developing or constructing our new studios in London in a different location, in a more safe place compared to 
the site that we were working previously. It's going to take time, obviously. The plan was in place to move from Chiswick Park, our previous site, to a new uh, site. But and we tried to accelerate it after these things basically happened and so, we had to seize our operation. So the plan was actually in place before February when yes. the London Bureau actually closed? Exactly. Our plan was to move from our uh, Chiswick Park So this location. is not something new. It had nothing to do with what happened now. But when police advised us to seize our operation in London, we tried to accelerate building those studios, finishing it as soon as possible. Uh, we were hoping to restart broadcasting from London sometime around June, but by the look of it, it's not going to happen now. Our aim is sometime around end of August, early September. That's our intention. That's what we are trying to do, but it will all depend on how cooperative UK officials are, because we did not stop our operation in London at will. We did not do it ourselves. We were advised to seize. And then police, counter-terrorism police are advising you to stop. You have basically no choice but. So what do you uh, actually want to see in terms of help from the British authorities to get the London operation back up and running? Uh, providing security, obviously. Uh, we are not aware of the threats. We don't know what is the nature of the threat. It's not shared with us. We know whatever has been published in public so far from the police. You have seen the police statement, I'm sure, on 17th of February when they advised us to seize our operation in London. So far, we don't have any update, but London is our hub. London is our headquarters, and we would like to stay in London, and we will definitely stay in London and start our broadcast from there. But again, I need to say that it all depends on the counter-terrorism police and metropolitan police in London, whether they are going to allow us to restart. I don't see any reason why they shouldn't, because they have been extremely cooperative, and we are very grateful for the support that we have received from UK officials so far. But then again, when we restart, hopefully end of August or early September, then we need to see what will happen. What can you share about the new location of this studio and the security measures that you're going to put in place? You know, bearing in mind a lot of these details, obviously, you might not want to disclose, but is there anything you can share? So we follow the advice that we receive from police. Whenever they say the site is secure enough to restart our operation, we will do so. Uh, but the measures that we are basically putting in place there are everything has been basically received or advised by the counterterrorism police. So we are not in a place to say that now this is secure or not, that the advice should come from UK officials. When you think back to mid-February, when the heads of the network made this decision to stop the operation from London, the London Bureau, and relocate uh, the programming to the Bureau here in Washington. How did you react to that decision? I have to say it was the police who advised us to stop operation in London. We couldn't allow the terrorists, whoever they are, to stop our broadcasting. So we immediately made the decision to move everything from London to to DC. How did you feel about that? Because you're one of the senior people here. So when you hear that uh, your office is about to get a lot more work, what goes through your mind? What happened on, on 17th of February, uh, it was about 1 p.m. DC time. 
some sometime around this time that uh, we learned that the police basically in London have advised that we need to stop operation. It was about like 6, 7 p.m. UK time. We stopped broadcast from London at 9.30 local time, London time, and then everything moved to U.S. As you know, we already had an operation in U.S., but we were doing nine hours of news every 24 hours and the rest of it because we are a 24-7 news channel, TV channel. So nine hours was done in D.C., 15 hours in London. But when we were told that we have to stop operating in London, we made the decision that we have, everything should come uh, to D.C. from that moment. So we started basically broadcasting from DC on our usual time because we used to start at 15.30 DC time every day. That was when London stopped and we started. And you took over. And then from that 15.30 on 17th of February, we turned to 24-7 operation. You can imagine that it was a kind of a mission impossible, basically, because the number of staff that we had here was only enough for that nine hours. The studios that we have here were not designed to do a 24-7 service. And that decision was totally unexpected. So how do you cope with that? I mean, how have you managed over the last uh, basically three months to do this 24-7 kind of operation in a bureau that wasn't originally designed for that? It was extremely difficult, both in terms of staffing and also the technical, basically, issues that we were facing. You may know that we have two TV channels, Iran International and Afghanistan International. Both of these channels were operating from London and D.C., uh, when Iran International was in London, Afghanistan International was in D.C. and vice, vice versa, versa, basically. So what we decided on that day, on 17th of February, we said, OK, London will be Afghanistan International and then D.C. Iran International. Exclusively. Exclusively. We had a team of journalists for Afghanistan International who were based in D.C. working for AI for Afghanistan International. So we moved all those staff from Afghanistan International to Iran International. And that, of course, helped us a lot. But for the first months, we were doing like crazy shifts. I mean, most of our people were doing like 12 hours, 13 hours, in some cases, 16 hours to be able to keep the channel alive. And then we started bringing in people from London. Some of our journalists basically traveled to D.C. to help us. That was Mehdi Parpanchi of Iran International. More of my conversation with him in next week's show. In last week's program, we heard part one of my interview with a London-based reporter who has investigated alleged Iranian plots in Britain like those targeting Iran International. The reporter, Paul Caruana Galizia, shares his findings in the second season of his podcast, Londongrad, which was published last month. In this final part of our interview, I asked Caruana Galizia what kinds of concerns he might have felt about trying to uncover the facts about alleged Iranian kidnapping and assassination plots. So there have been moments where I thought, am I exposing sources a bit too much? You know, am I revealing too much? Am I increasing a source's vulnerability? But we went through a very careful a really rigorous, actually, editing process where we were asked these questions and where we, you know, we heard from 
the people responsible for policing these threats about what's helpful and what's not. Of course, ultimately, that that's our decision, what to report. On myself, you know, I had advice on what to do, where to go, what not to do, which was kind of, you know, as most investigative journalists get that kind of training and get that kind of advice. But I think this time over the reporting of this project, it felt the most immediate, I'd say, because, you know, often you'd meet a source and they'd be walking around with a close protection officer or three, you know, and you think, hang on, this is really real. So that that felt quite real in that moment. There have also been a number of attempts to kind of access my email which again happens, you know, it happens every now and then, and you never really know where it's coming from. But th- those seem to have have become more of a thing over the reporting of this project, which is a, a typical feature of, of Iranian plots. You know, they start with a cyber attack of some kind. Is there any direct response uh, that you had to this work from the Iranian government itself or any of its representatives? No, no response from them. And I think the reason is simple, that Iran takes a very um, either ideological view of who its enemies are, or a very precise view of who their enemies are in whatever moment. And the really striking thing about this story was where it started. It started with a media lawyer who acts for BBC Persian. And it kind of opened up this world, which was, I'm embarrassed to say, new to me, of an Iranian journalist diaspora in London that broadcasts via free-to-air satellite in Persian, right? Of course, they couldn't do the work they wanted to do back home, so they over time began settling here and setting up TV channels here. And they've always been harassed in the ways you'd expect and your listeners would know that their family members in Iran would be harassed and interrogated and so on. But ever since these journalists began reporting in Persian on the Masa Amini protests, which a number of people told us the Iranian government considers an existential threat, they became in turn more of a threat to the Iranian government. And of course, if they were back home, you know, their TV channels would be shut down, they'd be arrested, imprisoned, and so on. But the problem Iran has is they're here. And so it started dispatching people. And um, the threat, again, is specific. It is specifically the broadcasting in Persian of unrest to a Iranian audience. And I found that really interesting. And again, as part of that exercise where we went back to 1979 to look over the historical record of plots, you see the nature of those plots change over time. So that in 79, 80, 81, and for most of the early 80s, the Iranian government was targeting dissidents, so the Shah's former ministers or people who are still loyal to the Shah or other dissident groups, so specifically political dissident groups. Of course, because the Islamic Republic was new, 
It was a new and insecure state, and it wanted to eliminate any nascent or older political rivals. And, and once it did eliminate them, of course, the, the focus shifted. And that's why it's ultimately trying to stamp out freedom of speech wherever it is. Well, it's great that investigative journalists such as yourself are uh, shining a light to try to make sure that freedom of speech continues to thrive as much as it can. Uh, Paul Caruana Galizia, reporter at Tortoise Media, joining us on the line from London. Thank you very much for being with us on Flashpoint Iran. Thank you so much for having me. That brings us to the end of this week's program. You can subscribe to more episodes on Apple and Google Podcasts. If you're using the Apple app, feel free to leave a review. I'm Michael Lippin. On behalf of the Flashpoint Iran team, thank you for listening, and we invite you to join us again next week.